All right, we're going to go ahead and start. Um, my name is Jason Hickel, and I'm in the anthropology department here at LSE. Uh, can you hear me okay? Um, this panel has been convened by, uh, by Joss Witten, who will also be our first speaker. Afterwards, we're going to have Andreas Wittel uh, and then Richard Hall from De Montfort University. Uh, I'll just hand over to Joss now, and then I'll be, uh, I'll be doing the question and answer afterwards. Hi, good afternoon. Thanks for coming to this session. Um, so the session, I think, is cooperative, yes, higher, cooperative higher education. Um, uh, unfortunately, Mike Neary, who's also in the program, uh, is unwell and not able to be here today. So uh, there are just three of us um, speaking, which gives us a little bit more time, but um, it is a shame because Mike's contribution would have been very rich. Um, <coughs> The, well, my paper um, will hopefully kind of set things up uh, and explain why on earth we might even be thinking about this notion of cooperative higher education or cooperative university. Um, Andreas is then going to talk about a related theme, uh, the notion of the gift and the commons. Um, uh, and I think you'll find some similarities between what I say about the idea of uh, common ownership and social property. Uh, and then Richard will finish uh, talking about the alienation of academic labour, uh, production of value, and uh, transnational association of capital, uh, and where the university or higher education is situated in there. Um, I will just highlight that this paper, it's too long to read here today, but you can download the paper uh, from that uh, web address. Um, but I'm just going to, uh, with the help of a few slides, try and summarise uh, the paper um, and just work my way through um, uh, each section. Um, actually, I'm going to start at the very end of the paper because there's a postscript um, that talks about um, my work, Richard's work, and uh, several other people uh, over the last um, three and a half years. We've been working on a, a project, uh, actually, uh, it's rather grandly referred to as uh, a new model of higher education, but it's called the Social Science Centre in Lincoln, and in 2011, May 2011, it was formally constituted as a cooperative to provide free public higher education. Um, it has 40 members, it runs a course, there's two or three projects usually associated with it. It's very small, it's not a university, uh, but we do think that it offers uh, an alternative form of higher education. Uh, um, but, it, you know, I, I'm not uh, suggesting that in any way uh, replaces the current university. But it, for, for us and for me in particular, um, I treat it more as a kind of a laboratory for, for thinking through, a space for thinking through uh, alternative forms of higher education. And out of that space is this idea of a cooperative university. So, having uh, given you that preamble... Um, I begin the paper with a couple of quotes, one from Andrew McGettigan, if he's here, yes, hi Andrew, uh, another uh, from Banda, uh, I forget her first name, Banda, uh, who's writing in the uh, London Review of Books, uh, and what was common about both of these quotes, uh, and both articles, very interesting articles, 
was that both authors um, concluded that the real problem, the root of the problem, is that um, is the problems of, of governance and ownership of, of universities. So that's uh, how I start my paper, uh, and really that's what I focus on throughout most of the paper. Um, and um, as I said, I've been working in a constituted, formally constituted cooperative for higher education for the last three years, um, and I'm becoming more and more uh, familiar with the cooperative movement. Um, and so I've been thinking about uh, what can we draw from the cooperative movement, what can higher education draw from the cooperative movement, uh, because of course the cooperative movement uh, has been tackling the issues of ownership of property and its governance for over 150 years. Okay? This isn't a problem that's new, it might be new to us in higher education, but it's certainly not new to uh, the working class. Um, and um, we can draw a great deal just by looking at the history of the cooperative movement to really try and understand uh, our own predicament today. Um, you should also be aware that there's a great deal of activity in the school sector at the moment, and hundreds, literally hundreds of schools are converting to co-ops. Um, uh, and there's scholarship emerging around that. Uh, that's led by the cooperative college, um, which is a college um, run by the cooperative group. The cooperative college commissioned uh, a master's student at Bristol, Dan Cook, to produce a report for his MBA uh, on cooperative higher education. And Dan wrote a report called Realising the Cooperative University. It's very, very useful, very interesting. It kind of sets up an answer, well, not answers, but it, it sets up and, 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 and kind of considers some of the obvious questions that you might have initially when you're thinking about what is a cooperative university. And then there's other people uh, that have proposed the idea of a John Lewis-style university, a trust university, uh, and you may be aware of Mondragon, which is one of the largest cooperative corporations in the world in the Basque region of northern Spain, and they have their own university, worker cooperative university, that on the face of it actually looks a lot like our own institutions. Hundreds of students, uh, thousands of students actually, hundreds of staff, faculties, so it kind of looks familiar. Um, and so I, I, in, in my paper, I, I talk about all of this and try and kind of capture their, their somewhat sparse literature, um, but just um, offer you a picture of, of work that's going on in, in recent years. And roughly I divide that, that literature uh, and really the roots to co cooperative higher education or, 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 or um, versions of it into three kind of rather crude but I think fairly useful at least in presentations like this um, roots to cooperative higher education. One is conversion, okay, and I'm not, I, I'm not saying, I'm not privileging any of these right now to you, but I do in my paper. I concentrate primarily on the creation route, but I want you to be aware that there's the conversion route. That's take the University of Lincoln, my own university, what will it take for it to be a cooperative? Um, why should it be a cooperative? I suppose is the first question, but um, what will it take? to become a cooperative. How, how, what difference would that make? So that's the conversion route. There's also what uh, I call the dissolution route, which could be through uh, setting up research groups on cooperative values and principles. It could be um, whole degree programs that are run cooperatively. It could be an entire university's teaching and learning strategy that could be underpinned by cooperative values and principles. And this could be done formally, or it could be done subversively. Okay. 
and then creation, which is what I concentrate on, and that is outside of the mainstream uh, sector for higher, uh, for, for higher education, outside of the university structure, uh, build experiments. And this is where I put the social science centre that I'm involved in, uh, into that area there. Um, so just briefly, uh, conversion... Um, one of the main criticisms is that, like any cooperative, it runs a risk of degenerating. This whole kind of uh, literature around co-ops degenerating into capitalist enterprises. Um, the problem is, of course, that all co-ops are capitalist enterprises. How could you possibly run a non-capitalist enterprise within a capitalist society? Um, so I, I think really the critics of the degeneration theory kind of set up a, a bit of a straw man in a way. Uh, we, should, we shouldn't think of cooperatives as the end goal. They're a transition to something else, uh, probably taking decades uh, and beyond our lifetime, in my own personal opinion. Um, but anyway... Conversion, they could just end up becoming the universities we have already. Um, Mondragon, um, although it was created as a worker cooperative because of its particular scale and, and its particular character, it is a useful way of looking at what a, a conversion might look like. Although, do be aware that it's very specific to the Basque region uh, uh, that uh, it's been developed out of. And then a book which I refer to a lot in my paper, but unfortunately forgot to re actually reference it at the end, uh, is a book by Casimir um, called The Myth of Mondragon. And it was a critical anthropological study uh, where she went uh, for two or three years, I think, um, on different occasions, uh, and um, observed and, uh, Mondragon in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. And her, I, I point to several of her criticisms um, because she, um, she looked at Mondragon from the point of view of the workers rather than the managerial class that has developed in this large corporation. And the, large the managerial class often talk about the wonderful benefits of cooperative movement, um, but she found that the actual people on the ground, the workers in the worker co-op, were fairly ambivalent about it and disgruntled. And um, her, her main uh, point, or the main point I get out of it, is that if you're going to set up a cooperative, it it's got to be infused uh, and maintained with a sense of politics. So dissolution I've already uh, uh, discussed. Um, what I will just add here is that um, we've just finished a, a formal project at the University of Lincoln called Student Producer, which was to develop a, an entirely new uh, teaching and learning strategy for the university university. Um, uh, that formally funded project over three years finished a few months ago uh, and now we're kind of living with the outcomes of it. Um, but in my mind, although it was never framed as cooperative higher education, you, you could see students produced as a model for how to kind of convert an entire institution into something um, you know, more desirable. Uh, and students producer, I think, offers a model. And I discussed students producer in the last uh, third part of my paper. So creation, um, I focus specifically on uh, worker co-ops. Oh, I just need some water. Um, because, well, personally, I'm, I'm most interested in them, in them. They're the most radical form of co-op. Um, they directly tackle issues of ownership and democratic control. Um, also, worker co-ops, um, by their nature, have to tackle um, the, uh, the kind of categories of membership. 
um, and they tend to be very flat and consensus-based. Uh, and that ties in with the work we did on students-producer, which is trying to level the relationship between teacher and student. Um, also, the history of the worker cooperative movement, as I have discovered, I'm still kind of uh, learning about, um, has a very rich history, closely related to the trade union movement and the development of socialism, and I think there's lots of lessons to be learned there. Also, um, I discussed briefly in the paper that you can see the worker co-op form of institution um, as, a, as, a, as an imminent critique um, of capital, but also prefigurative of um, what we might call post-capital. Um, and if you haven't guessed already, I draw a lot from the theory and method of Marx in uh, my paper as well. Um, so, briefly then, what are we talking about when we're talking about a co-op? This is the internationally agreed identity statement um, that has been used since 1995. It's a uh, revision of something that goes back to the mid-19th um, century. Okay, Autonomous Association of Persons, jointly owned, democratically controlled enterprise. So this is internationally um, acknowledged and is a guiding uh, identity statement for all cooperatives. Cooperatives are then built again from this same uh, statement from 1995. Cooperatives have six values and uh, I think seven, if I remember rightly, seven principles. Um, the values are the basis for the principles, and the principles are what informs our action within a cooperative. Just be aware of what these are. They're taken very seriously. Uh, you can go to meetings where there are people in the cooptic movement, and these are referred to a lot. Um, self-help, self-responsibility, democracy, equality, equity and solidarity. Um, education, training and information is a core principle of the cooptive movement. Okay? Concern, uh, cooperation among cooperatives and concerned communities. This idea of solidarity. Um, Dan Cook, in his report, uh, suggests, and I think he's probably, probably right, you know, it's debatable, but he thinks that these, uh, these um, are similar. They can be, you know, they're similar to academic values and principles. Most academics wouldn't have a problem with taking these on board. Uh, that's debatable, but I think there is some, there is some uh, alliance there. Now, worker cooperatives, again, because I focus that on, uh, on that primarily, in 2005 there was a world declaration tied to the international identity statement about what worker co-ops are. And this is the international, well, I've summarised it here. They talk about six characters, or the basic characters of worker co-ops, and that's what we have here. So the dignity of work and importance of democratic self-management, the free association of workers. This term free association has been around, well, at least since Marx's day. Um, that members of the cooperative, co uh, uh, the cooperative collectively employ themselves to undertake the work. Um, there's, there's a whole distinction about uh, how wage labour works in the worker cooperative as well, and I talk about that in, in some detail in the paper. The idea being that if you can abolish wage labour, wage labour then you abolish alienation. Um, uh, again, problematic, but, but if, we, if we see, the, again, I kind of reiterate this point, if we see the cooperative form of institution as something transitioning to something else, um, then we don't kind of write off these as, as just being unrealistic or, or, or um, impossible. Um, 
and uh, democratic decision making and autonomy from the state autonomy from the state um, so again I'm just working through the kind of sections of the paper there's a section there where I talk about labour how labour might work in a worker cooperative university um, uh, draw on Marx where he, uh, he equated effectively in the German I ideology division of labour is equivalent to private property so um, if, if you're going to tackle uh, issues around property and ownership of property you do have to tackle uh, issues around labour as well Marx uses a term called indirect labour what he's talking about is how exchange relation uh, mediates um, uh, uh, well, the, the activity between uh, human beings, the labour among human beings. Um, and then he talks about, um, not very often, but when he does talk about post-capitalism or communism, uh, he refers to direct labour. Uh, and uh, that is labour that's not mediated through uh, uh, equivalent, equivalents uh, uh, of exchange. So I, I discuss this in the context of how it might work uh, in a university, um, how it is it in practice, in worker co-ops. Um, but the point uh, that I return to later in the paper is that, um, you know, the, well, this is again coming from our students' producer project, but the core purpose or meaning of a university is research and teaching. It's a relationship between teachers and students. Um, and so you can't, this isn't just, a, this isn't just a, an issue of academic labour, it's about uh, rethinking the role of the student as well as part of that um, co-optive uh, form of higher education um, and, and that it should be grounded in this pedagogical relationship. Um, property, uh, very interesting, um, you, you may already know, but in the UK at least we have an Industrial Common Ownership Act since 1976. Um, and this refers to something called common ownership, and common ownership is built into the constitutions of many cooperatives. It's, if you download template constitutions from the Cooperative UK website, uh, they will have this paragraph on common ownership. Um, effectively, what it means is that nobody owns um, the property. Not the state, it's not privately owned through individual equity, um, it is owned, well, it, it is, the, the members of the cooperative act as stewards, and if the cooperative dissolves for whatever reason, um, it is constituted in that cooperative uh, and underwritten by the Industrial Common Ownership Act that that property has to be then passed on to a similar cooperative organisation. So the point I make in the paper is that this isn't public in terms of state-owned or state-run. Uh, it's not private because no individual owns it. You can't leave and then take your bit with you. In Mondragon, you can. Mondragon is based on individual equity. If you want to go and work at Mondragon, you have to give them 15,000 euros. They usually take that through Social Security, which you can in Spain. Um, and when you leave Mondragon, you can take some equity with you. They're not in a cooperative that's constituted uh, with the idea of common ownership. Okay? So... I think this is an interesting thing to consider in terms of um, uh, the, the kind of property ownership of, of universities, either existing or newly created. Um, 
There's a, there's a, I found a very helpful article by Axworthy and Perry that talks a lot of, uh, well, discusses this idea, uh, well, the Industrial Common Ownership Act and compares it to similar acts around the world. Um, and they say that members cannot freely alienate their shares in the cooperative. Um, it, it has many of the characteristics of public property rather than simply private property held in aggregate of individualities. Um, and this ties in with theory around the idea of worker cooperatives uh, and labour in worker cooperatives being non-alienated labour. Um, again, coming back to this idea that the division of labour is equivalent of private property. You can't, you can't in society have, have the two, according to Marx at least. Um, and Egan and Josser uh, have done some very interesting work um, uh, on worker cooperatives, um, which uh, I think raises a number of interesting questions. What's interesting is that Josser, if you look at the development of his work, he starts off thinking that worker cooperatives are the annual and deal and the overcome alienation, and then his, in his most recent uh, article and book, he, he kind of concedes that they don't quite overcome alienation. Um, but I could have told him that to begin with. Um, and then the third section of the paper uh, is on this idea of um, that the institutional form, whatever form it takes, uh, should really be derived out of the pedagogical form. Um, uh, and I, I get that from our students' producer project. It's something that, that is kind of uh, important to that project that we worked on at the University of Lincoln. Um, but also it's something that Kaslier in her book on the myth of Mondragon's uh, kind of concludes, and that is that you can't just impose a business form on people. Uh, it, it, it must come out of the activity of, of the workers. Uh, and so um, if you think of a university, the primary core activity is one being a pedagogical activity, then it's about, it's about understanding that and, and developing, possibly, a cooperative institutional form from it. This is a kind of broad, three minutes, great, I'm nearly done. This is a broad statement about students' producer, been lots written about students' producer, mainly by Mike Neary, who unfortunately isn't here today, um, but there's, there's a great deal that's been written. It is a three-year, or was a three-year, HEA-funded project, so there's project reports and all that kind of thing that you can go in and read. Um, and it's, it's had its successes and its failures, um, and I'm happy to talk about those uh, later if you wish. Um, but it's fundamentally... Um, oh, I'll just... Uh, that's right. Uh, so Casmir talks about uh, business forms rather than... Uh, people rather than business forms being the agents of change. So Student's Producer uh, is kind of inspired by Benjamin's uh, author's producer essay, and that is that the emphasis uh, shouldn't be on the qualitative nature of the project, but also on the, the process and means of knowledge production. Um, uh, and Student's Producer, particularly when you read Mike's work, is, is very much about um, uh, positioning Student's Producer as a, a, both a theory and a practice that's antithetical to capital. Um, Okay, I, I think I'll, I will wind up here. There's enough words on the screen. Um, the, the final point, I suppose, and it's a kind of theoretical point, um, uh, but I do think the worker cooperatives um, um, put it into praxis, uh, and that is that um, 
I don't think uh, a worker cooperative sh uh, should be about the reification of labour, the reification of work. Uh, it should be about uh, creating a space to abolish work, uh, and that is to abolish the capitalist form uh, of wage labour and alienated labour. Uh, and there's some very interesting uh, work by Moishe Postoni, a, a historian in Chicago, uh, and a number of other um, uh, Marxist scholars that uh, pick up on this idea again from Marx that actually the, 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 the worker movement of the 20th century uh, really got it all wrong. It's not about reifying labour, it, it's really about abol abolishing labour. Um, and and uh, that's not doesn't mean that we want to abolish all human activity, it means the, uh, the capitalist form of, uh, of labour. And so I discussed that um, a bit as well in the paper. Okay, I think that's it. Oh, one last slide. Um, some interesting work done by Kerry Facer at Bristol on cooperative schools and cooperative education in general. Uh, and in her paper, along with uh, 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 two other authors, um, they identify four elements of uh, cooperative education. Uh, and it, I suggest that uh, amidst all of the curricula you would have in a cooperative university, that this is how you reinforce the politics of, uh, and the, the kind of the, 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 the values and principles of the cooperative movement. Um, and this is taken directly from from Faces paper. Okay. Um, oh, and the Social Science Centre, um, socialsciencecentre.org.uk. Thanks, Jess. Next we have Andreas Witzel from, uh, from Nottingham Trent University. Thanks. I want to talk about, um, about two concepts that um, I want to relate to higher education. One is the concept of the gift, and the other is the concept of the commons. And maybe um, I should sort of quickly explain why why these two kind of two concepts seem seem important to me. That the, the commons is is, a, is a, I think a fairly obvious one. Um, basically, we, we have sort of kind of three forms of, of property or of, of goods. We have private property, we have um, public property, and we have common property. Now, I think we all agree in this room that we kind of don't want education as a commodity. Um, we might have kind of different views in this room whether um, education should be a public good. Personally, I'm not very nostalgic about the, the sort of kind of demise of the public university, and um, this is why um, I'm interested in sort of kind of thinking um, whether another model would be um, preferable to that. Um, whether it would be preferable to think on, about higher education as a, as a common good instead, or as a, um, instead of a public good. Um, and I'm interested in, 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 the, in the notion of the gift because um, uh, basically it's just kind of because I read um, finally um, Louis Hyatt's book on the gift, which is a lot about art, but I think you can make very sort of kind of interesting um, connections to education as well. 
Now the gift and the and and the property they kind of seem to kind of go work nicely together, but analytically they're kind of rather different concepts. The the not the gift and the property, the gift and the commons. I mean, the commons really is a is a property regime and a regime of a very specific governance to to um, to deal with this um, property. Where, whereas the gift is a, is, is a form of exchange, um, so it's not. These are these are very different um, different concepts, basically. I'd like to kind of start with the gift and move on to to um, property uh, to commons, and then what I kind of really want to do is is apply um, these two concepts to two developments. Um, in higher education, that sort of kind of emerged over, especially over the last five years or so. One is the, the massive open online courses, and the other one um, is um, free universities and kind of places like Social Science Center in Lincoln. Um, so, the gift. What, what Louis Hyde writes about art is, I'll, I'll just kind of quote something, works of art exist simultaneously in two economies, a market economy and a gift economy. Only one of these is essential, however. A work of art can survive without a market, but where there is no gift, there is no art. Now, Louis Hyde has a kind of quite an interesting way of identifying what is art and what is not art. So he says, um, let's say kind of romantic novels that are produced only for the market and according to kind of marketing strategies where you kind of think about what gets bought most, which names, which sort of kind of how do you kind of have designed the plot and so on. That's not art. That's just kind of, it's a cultural product um, but it's because it's only designed for a market, it's not art. Art has to, art is something else. Art is, is something that kind of transforms us, that moves us, that inspires us, it's that rocopy. And because of that, this is where the kind of notion of the kind of gift comes in. Um, so the, the gift is, on one hand, on the kind of gifted, talented artist that kind of produces something that then, on the other hand, um, moves those that um, get um, confronted with it. So the, the viewers, the recipients of that, of that art, and, there, and, and those who are then transformed by that. And I think we could make a similar sort of claim, or the same, for, for education. So I, th I think we could say education can survive um, without a market, but where there is no gift, there is no education. And I'm I'm re I'm, I'm 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 narrowing this down now to the to the teacher-student relationship. I'm not talking about peer learning. I'm not talking about sort of kind of learning that is very much self-directed learning, which of course is all part of um, university learning, but I'm, I'm, I'm really kind of focusing on the relationship between the teacher and the student. Um, I think it's a, there is a same, in this interaction, that's kind of the same thing happens. Some, if, if education works, um, 
a, a transformation happens or an inspiration or a challenge or something something happens that kind of makes education worthwhile and of course this I think what the difference is kind of in, in, in between education and art is, is that in education it the, the, the gift really um, is, 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 is in the interaction, is in the relationship between the teacher and the student. Whereas in art, you, you don't really kind of have this kind of um, relationship. So the kind of the artist doesn't kind of really know who's going to watch the work later on, and um, so there is no relationship in that. But with education, I, th I, I think with education there has been there has there has to be this this relationship. But that's debatable when I when I talk about the massive um, open online courses. Um, so. Hyatt's book is fantastic. I kind of really like it, but I think it, there is also kind of stuff to to kind of really work through it. It's not. It's it's for me not all that kind of stuff is um is resolved. What I kind of find interesting is is that he throughout the book he very much insists on on the notion that um, gifts that with a gift comes an obligation to return the gift. So it's a kind of you know it's a classic argument developed by by um, Marcel Maus and um, usually developed in anthropology um, but he doesn't really explain how, how the artist <laughs> um, that produces the gift um, um, receives the gift in return. There is kind of no explanation for that and the gift that he kind of uses to kind of explain what what the artist does, this the inspiration, the challenge, the, the transformation, all these things, they're not really kind of part of the kind of economic system. So I think there are two systems here at place. One is about economic exchange, which is the gift economy as we usually know it, and the other one is sort of, for me, something beyond economic reason. Um, and with respect to education, I would kind of think that there is something in the pedagogy of that, in the interaction, um, um, that has nothing to do with, 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 with this exchange. So they're talking about two, two forms of gift here. Before I kind of move on now to, to, um, to the comments, I, I, um, I should really say um, just a kind of quick note on, on gift theory. There are, I mean, the big debate in gift theory is the debate about reciprocity. So, um, on the one hand, we have quite a strong anthropological tradition with Maus, I've kind of said that already, um, that insists that, that gifts come with an obligation to accept the gift, but also with an obligation to return the gift at some point. Um, whereas in, in philosophy, there is a kind of number of um, scholars, um, Derrida, um, uh, Levinas, Ecoeur, who, who say that the pure gift does not have to be returned. The pure gift is the gift that is completely altruistic um, and and is is sort of kind of yes there, there is no there is no reciprocity in this um, and of course where, while these pure gifts exist um, for example with um, um, in terms of 
I don't know, donations, um, money donations, blood donations, or you know, all these kind of things that, that these would be the, the, the sort of pure gifts. Um, they're not sort of kind of part of the everyday life, and I think they, they cannot be part of the of the education of the gift that is in education. The gift in education has to be sort of because education is interaction. It has to it has to be it has to sort of kind of relate to the anthropological idea of gift giving, and that makes it complicated with respect to higher education. I think. Um, I'd like, I'm, I'm moving on to the comments now. Um, um, so the common stands as an alternative, as, as, as kind of the common good, as, a, as an alternative to the commodity and, and, and the public good. Um, commons usually refer to cultural or natural resources accessible to all members of a society, including natural materials such as air, water, and, and earth, but they also refer to um, language and software and, and, and other things. So in a way, the kind of commons is kind of fairly close to the cooperative, but the commons is not a business. The cooperative is, is usually sort of kind of still um, a business where the kind of commons is not that, and that's why I kind of sort of prefer to kind of, you know, think about higher education as a, as a commons. Um, a commons, every commons needs three features. It needs people that are part of that commons, it needs shared resources, and it needs a sort of kind of system of rules in terms of how to deal with these resources and how to kind of penalize people that kind of don't follow the rules, etc. So it needs some sort of kind of governance structure. Examples of educational commons for me would be homeschooling initiatives. This is where, where, where parents say, you teach my kids maths and I teach your kids Spanish. And, and everybody kind of has some sort of kind of expertise and come together. And so this is how, how, how these kind of resources could be shared. I think another example could be the family. Family is a bit more problematic, but I think I think we, we, we would have the kind of same, more or less the same system. In terms of higher education, things get much more complicated um, because, on the one hand, we kind of have this kind of problem with the notion of reciprocity. How can how can the student that receives the gift from the teacher kind of give back um, the gift? Um, I don't think in, in, in this kind of direct way of reciprocity it would, it, it would never work. I think the only, the only way we can, we, we can think about that is if we kind of think about some sort of deferred reciprocity, where the student receives a gift and, it, and, and at some point um, passes on this gift, and it doesn't have to be, and the gift doesn't have to kind of be passed on to the back to the person who gave the gift, but it could be passed on to other people. So Lewis Hyde talks about um, the gift community and brings lots of anthropological examples um, how gifts travel in communities. So people receive a gift and then um, the, the, those ones that, that, that um, receive them, they don't treat them as property but pass them on um, to family members, friends, etc., and these pass them on again. So, if the gift travels, we have a we have a gift community, and in this way, we could we could indeed think um, 
um, about gift giving with respect to higher education as well. And the other problem is, of course, the, 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 the problem of hierarchy, where the, the ideal commons is, 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 is a, is a non-hierarchical system, where, whereas the, the student-teacher relationship is, is, is um, always has this kind of hierarchy kind of embedded in it, this notion of hierarchy. So, um, how much time? Yeah, 10 minutes. 10 minutes? Oh, that's, yeah. So, um, I want to kind of apply these, these two concepts to um, massive open online courses on the one hand and to, to free universities on the other hand. Because I think these, both of these developments sort of seem to break free of the sort of kind of public university that, or, the, or the, now the, the private or the, the University as um, as um, as corporation, what we what we more and more have. So the massive open online courses are um, they're either either just kind of modules or total degree programs or even universities. Um, pretty much kind of, you know, based on this kind of massive thing. So examples would be University of the People, Open Educational Resource University, um, Coursera, edX, and, and others. They're all, they're neither private nor state institutions, that's clear. But, of course, that doesn't make them necessarily a promise. Um, and, and what they are, I don't know. They are, in a way, they're sort of kind of crowdsourcing approaches to education. They're designed to foster a distributed, collaborative, peer-to-peer -peer learning experience. Um, they kind of quite, quite often come with um, certification, and um, they're very much driven by by digital technologies. When obviously. <laughs> Driven by digital technologies, that's that's how that's how they work. Um, and what they do is they provide education at near zero marginal costs, which means they don't cost anything. So you can educate hundred thousand millions of people um, with sort of kind of without big investments. Um, so politically, this is of course an, an, an interesting approach because um, these courses can reach regions or people that never kind of had a chance to um, really attend universities so far. So there is, um, in, in, in terms of the kind of geopolitical um, impact, um, this needs to be kind of you know highly applauded and. Uh, Jeremy Rifkin, who kind of thinks that capitalism is crumbling now in his sort of kind of latest book, just because of digital technologies and because from now on um, the collaborative commons will sort of kind of eventually supersede capitalism, he, he has a whole chapter on these kind of online courses and he's, he highly celebrates them um, as sort of kind of the... the Yes, as an, as, as an amazing development. The kind of question that I have is, is, is whether this can still be called education. Education in, in, in a sense where sort of kind of gift giving happens. If there is, 
if, if all that stuff is available for free, so where is the gift? And it's available for free because labor is reduced to minimum. So what, what really happens in these courses is, um, is a provision of online material, which is of course not, not a bad thing, but it's all about kind of designing on, on ma providing material, videos, this and that, um, audio stuff, um, texts, um, that then can be accessed by everybody, and then you have kind of all sorts of kind of multiple choice questions where, where stuff can be tested. But you, it's it's it all that can be done by sort of kind of um, automation by technology. You kind of don't you, it, as as soon as everything is set up, you kind of don't really need labor anymore for that. So where the labor comes in, which is in 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 feedback that kind of goes beyond. The kind of automation for, for multiple choice questions, um, these courses usually cost. Which then kind of, you know, is a rather problematic thing. Because um, how can you, I mean, the whole, the whole idea of education is the feedback, isn't it? So kind of you take the feedback. So what, 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 uh, what that means is we provide education, but if you want feedback, you have to pay. So I'm not, for, for, I'm not really sure if this deserves sort of kind of the, the, the if, if education is kind of the right term for that, or, or we should see this more as a sort of kind of a form of um, skill training, which is kind of something else, because I, I think in skill training we don't have this kind of idea, the, the idea of the gift doesn't sort of kind of, isn't applicable. Um, much Okay, so um, the other development I, 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 I would like to mention is the, is the development of free universities that have um, sort of kind of, yeah, over the last, I, would, I don't know, five years, they, they, they have emerged sort of in, in all areas, in, in the US, in the, in the UK, in other, in other countries. Um, um, and of course, as a, as, as a direct response to the marketization and final financialization of um, of the of the public university, so the pedagogy in 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 in, in this system is very different from the open online courses. So here we really have a focus on face to face and on interaction. So here we have exactly that kind of idea of the gift that could that could shine in probably in its best way. Um, it's, it's also kind of a very different form of organization. It's much more autonomous, much more anarchist way of setting up education to focus on locality, face-to-face, -face, mutuality, collective decision-making processes, all these, all these things. Um, the the question that I have is how sort of kind of how, how sustainable these 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 initiatives are and and can be and the, the the problem I see is is indeed sort of kind of lies indeed in the in the notion of labor and um, and free labor that is offered here. So I'm in a sort of kind of environment where everybody kind of is exhausted. 
this is a sort of kind of our general state at the moment, exhaustion. Nobody kind of has really um, time and energy to, to kind of invest in anything else anymore um, apart from the kind of stuff they're forced to do for their own institution. It's very difficult to kind of break yeah, it's very difficult sort of to, to break free of that and then sort of kind of create this alternative space, what Marx would sort of call it, you know, where the new could breed out of the, in the, in the kind of lap of the old. Um, um, so, yeah, I, I, as a, as a, I think as a pedagogical project, I, I, I think it's, it's, we have all the kind of ingredients here for a commons, apart from maybe the kind of hierarchies, which would be another kind of thing for discussion that I kind of can't open up now. But I think I'm more interested in the, in the notion how, yes, how sustainable how sustainable these initiatives are. And I've seen I've seen some of them uh, emerging, and and a couple of years later they didn't exist anymore. So um, there there seems to be kind of a, a point that these that these um, initiatives are. In, in, in that respect, quite fragile, and I'll I'll, um, I'll stop with that. Thanks, Andres. Uh, and our final speaker is Richard Hall uh, from De Montfort University. Let's find the slides here. I'm the last going grey man to speak at you today. I think. <laughs> is that right? Yes, but I work that works. So I can walk around. Um, I wonder if it's a Is it quicker? Yeah, I think it'll work. Seems to work. Right. So I want to pick up on that point of Andreas about exhaustion. And in part because one of the things that kind of struck me from Gaminda's talk earlier was about kind of where do we find space to push back. And um, my role in the institution, I have a chair in um, education and technology, but I'm head of, of Enhancing learning through technology, you know, it's kind of e-learning, technology-enhanced learning, people's front of Judea, Judea, people's front, you know. <laughs> but effectively, you become you become a bit of a reseller for technology for inside the institution. Technology is a brilliant thing in, in a kind of follow-the-money way, follow, follow where the technology leads you. So we implement Blackboard. Well, that connects us through into kind of private finance. It connects into Pentagon, into Pentagon contracts, which under underwrite. Um, contracts there, we deploy Turnitin, well that's just been bought out by venture capital, so what does, and I have to, and, and we, we are, well, what's our tablet strategy, Richard, what's our, bring your own device strategy, Richard, well, should we have a conversation about conflict minerals that kind of are embedded in, no, we can't have that conversation, can we? So it's very conflicting, it's very exhausting, so being involved, one of the other things I do is been involved with Joss um, in a number of occupations in 2011, 2012, going to speak there, talk about things like student as producer, but also being involved in um, the cooperative university movement and in the social science centre. It's kind of therapy, and it reminds me of kind of Maggie Turk's work um, from 2001 on um, culturally acceptable self-harming activities. So, and, and her work really on, on where do we find spaces for self-care in this Mess in this parade, and what do we and what do we do? So for me, kind of being involved in the social science centre enables me a little bit to live with my conscience when I'm thinking about Gaminda's point about um, about pushing pushing back, but pushing back and defending is very is exhausting. When you're sitting in committee meetings, where you don't have the time to engage because it's just about well, 
okay, Richard, that's fine. We can deliberate if you want, but, but actually we have to make a decision. This project or that project or, you know, how are we going to get NSS scores? Or what are we going to do about, it, about personal tutoring? What are we going to do about peer mentoring? And, and it's, it becomes very functional inside the institution, and it's exhausting. And, and so I come back to a, there was a great slide that Andrew Gagan, in a, in a great presentation of a UCU event in Nottingham, he closed out with um, Kenny Rogers, the gambler. You've got to know when to hold and know when to fold and know when to walk away, know when to run. And I think that's kind of critical for me to kind of bear in mind as we move forward. So really I want to talk about, um, in, the, in the first instance, I want to talk kind of about a uh, kind of critical theoretical framework for for how I'm trying to position my work, really, and then to talk about the, the I guess, the alternatives that, that kind of interest me at the moment. And in particular, they interest me because I think they're focused more on values, and I know that's problematic, that values are problematic, in particular from the kind of the methodological perspective that Joss and I come from, but as opposed to kind of value production and circulation and accumulation inside the academy that causes a kind of psychic almost kind of splitting that, it, that, that itself becomes kind of problematic. And I think that connects back to Wendy's point from earlier on about, well, where does regulation and governance lie inside the university? And my university has a bond. So, you know, there's credit rating agencies, there's insurance companies in the bond markets, there's all of that stuff alongside the quality assurance agency that regulates my labor. So, I guess my kind of, there's a, there's a three kind of tripartite kind of thing here, really. The first is that, that I've been thinking quite a lot about this in terms of a secular crisis, the secular crisis of capitalism that I guess people like Harry Cleaver in reading Capital Politically um, and the autonomous tradition would, would kind of talk about. But actually, systemically and globally, um, getting stable forms of accumulation back on track is incredibly problematic, in spite of a whole series of capitalist countermeasures. <laughs> and in part, that is why historical socialised value, for instance, private, um, public health, public and free healthcare or public education is being commodified um, and accumulated, re-enclosed. And, it's, and that's being done in quite a coercive way. So I'm not sure where I stand on kind of Mike's point from earlier about, well, you know, there are no tanks on Senate lawn because, you know, if you're, being, if you're a student in October, in November 2010 being kettled on Westminster Bridge in sub zero temperature, I'm not sure, you know, and, and you see that the Mayor of London is is about to deploy a water cannon in the capital. Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not kind of sure about levels of kind of coercion in that space. There's also something here about um, associations of capitals that I will talk about briefly. And, and for me, there's something about, um, I'm going to end on a point about mass intellectuality and the idea of mass intellectuality that Joss flagged on, on one of the points, on one of the pages, where he's talking about student as producer, and the idea that they're kind of attempting to abolish academic labour. But I'm not interested in the rate, I want to abolish myself actually, I think that's kind of the, kind of the logic in this. But it's something, there's something about how do we abolish the reified nature of, of academic labour in order to kind of dissolve the knowledges, skills, practices into the fabric of society before they are enclosed and commodified and someone else owns them. Or maybe it's too late, and maybe it's too late inside the university, and maybe we look elsewhere, which is why the cooperative thing is important. Okay, so, so I'm... I'm interested in um, the work of William, William Robinson, who in 2004 wrote a theory of global capitalism. He's written, I think, 13 theses on, on, on capital as well. Does quite a lot of work in Latin America and South America. 
but his and this is kind of this is kind of kind of following on from him really is to try and get a sense of ways in which um, the university is being restructured for for value restructured and restructured transnationally. So it isn't as so. And one of the questions I was going to ask Kaminda earlier was about kind of the role of trade unions in this, because there's something about labour relations and the role of trade unions. And I, and I kind of bottled out and didn't ask the question, but it's but there's something for me. And what are the role? What's the role of, of labour in negotiating with CEOs or vice chancellors or whoever who are part of a, a broader formal and informal network of power, a shifting alliance that, that Stephen Ball, I think it's 2012, not 2011. Um, the Stephen Ball in Global Education Incorporated talks about, uh, 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 in terms of geographies of social relationships, are transnational, and how do you push back against that? And he talks, and Stephen has a re- some really interesting network analyses of the ways in which, um, in particular, James Tooley at the University of Newcastle, but also individuals like Sugatra Mitra, who in the kind of technology environment are held up as kind of really democratic emancipatory individuals, how they network through work with um, think tanks, policy makers, private finance, private equity, media corporations and publishers, how they're embedded and how, and how that then operates um, as an activist network for the market. And I think for me this is quite interesting because it kind of mirrors some of the work of David Harvey and his work on um, um, volume two of Capital, where he, he makes a point about um, about Marx talking about joint venture companies in the 19th century, and talking about associations of capitals coming together in order to do things that an individual capital can't do. To be able to leverage more finance, to be able to leverage more value production, to be able to leverage qualitatively something different. And, and there's a connection there, I think, to this idea of, of, trans, of transnational activism, certainly by neoliberal, neoliberal um, networks, <coughs> that I think offers an interesting alternative to connect to the point about the commons for those who wish to oppose that, and how do we think transnationally? How do we use that idea as a crack, almost, to kind of push back? How do we join up um, into maybe framing things around mass intellectuality and seeing this deeply as a pedagogical problem pedagogical moments, a pedagogical issue to, to push back. So, do I want to talk about that? No. That's the kind of secular crisis of capital. That's what Harry Cleaver talks about in his thesis on the secular crisis. Um, I think the second point is quite interesting, though. Um, certainly, in, in terms of... And, and Harvey, again, picks this up latterly in his kind of work on the contradictions of capital, to look at where, to look at where antagonism lies. I think there was a question earlier, wasn't there, aimed at Andrew about about where, where the cracks are and do and how do we and how do we get into the cracks and how do we kind of ex- and how do we explode them and what is the role of kind of academics in that process um, and I guess some of that is about comes back to John's point from the previous session about research with and research about on, on what is our kind of critical role in that space. And I think certainly in terms of, say, I don't know, universities that are being restructured through the bond markets, that have connections through to private equity, that, that then are deploying certain management techniques like Prince2, managing successful programs, for instance, lean management structures, where, where traditional university governance structures through university learning and teaching committees are then being subsumed under strategic portfolio management boards, which are effectively administrative ways of leveraging more value out of labour or efficiencies out of labour, which is happening in several institutions. There's a, there's a need to kind of think about that academically, I think, in terms of um, 
why that's being imposed. Why, why is that? Bit, who is imposing that? What does it reveal about power? What does it reveal about hegemony? What is it, and therefore, what does it re- reveal about spaces to kind of push back? And certainly, I think, therefore, to see that kind of transnationally, are there, are there possibilities to push back through kind of trades unions, for instance, through the curriculum, through formal institutional structures, through teaching excellence awards, through the role of, of notional champions in teaching, teacher fellows, national teacher fellows, those sorts of people, or not? Or actually, if you're, if you're looking to defend a position against, against somebody with transnational power, is that, is that, does that become an impossibility, a self-defeating impossibility that just leaves you um, exhausted? Kind of like that. And I kind of like this as well from David Willits. I'll return to this later, but um, Willits's paper on Robbins Revisited has been kind of mentioned a couple of times already. Um, Page 47 in Robbins Revisited, he, he, he's very clear with that radical change as to how universities finance difficult to change behaviour. Now there's an opportunity to use our funding changes to push a real cultural change back towards teaching. And, and, and this, this, paper's, um, this paper's really enlightening in thinking about the use of big data, thinking about the use of learning analytics, thinking about the way in which pedagogies in terms of um, class contact um, in terms of access to students, in terms of how quickly you get feedback back from your staff, are going to be turned against, will be turned against us. So, you know, at the Montford University, we have a four-week turnaround time for feedback. But hell, what if Coventry, who are in the same month, what they get this back in three and a half weeks? Well, you know, I don't care about your nationally negotiated um, agreement. Things start to break. Things start to creak in that, in 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 around that moment. Um, and in particular where we see the use of all these other things that we all know about, MOOCs, learning analytics, secondary legislation to drive change, <coughs> student debt, all that, all that jazz. Force, I guess, um, or connect into kind of funding changes to push a cultural change. And it's a qualitative thing. It's a qualitative thing. It changes, I think, culturally how we view higher education. Um, and emerging out of that, we see, we see a range of campaigns emerging out of that. And they're important campaigns. And they're campaigns that are situated not just inside any one institution. And they might be deemed as kind of cooperative. So the, the Tres Cosas, the Three Cosas campaign here in London, it's very important. We've got postgraduates of fair pay at the uh, University of Leeds as well, fighting, fight, uh, attempting to kind of push back um, and casual adjunct sessional staff in Australian Universities, which is a kind of trans-institutional um, thing, collecting narratives, and narratives are really important. When we were on strike earlier this year, narratives for staff about why they were on strike are incredibly important in trying to frame moments of solidarity that might be used pedagogically to, to develop an alternative, because people don't get to hear those narratives otherwise. So these narratives that emerge from inside, I think, are really important. How long have I got? About 10 minutes. Not going to go there. Postone, though, if you, don't, if you haven't read Postone, read your Postone. Um, it's fantastic. <laughs> and then we'll have a chat about that. Let's not talk about that either. So can you read that? Get a job, go to work, get married, have children, follow fashion, act normal, walk on the pavement, watch TV, obey the law, save your old age, now repeat after me, I am free. So these are kind of two students from um, teaching in Russell Square in March 2011. 
Okay, so it's kind of a messy space, and there's some institutional responses, and there's some precarious responses to this. And maybe picking up on Gaminda's point in the question that followed, it's interesting that the responses come from those who, who are precarious or casualized or who are postgrads or whose future is much more messy than those of us with tenure. Um, and I kind, of come, I kind of come back to, I guess, to Cleaver again um, from reading Capital politically in terms of th- trying to think about emancipation and struggle and the possibilities for that inside the university or whether it is whether the game's up, whether you've got to fold them and just walk away. <coughs> Take whatever you've got, fold them, walk away and, and operate um, beyond the institution. And um, Cleaver, coming from that kind of autonomous Marxist perspective, talks very much about kind of... Um, effectively kind of the, the organising principles for the production of knowledge and the sharing of knowledge and where that happens and talks about the social factory much more. So it talks about this idea of mass intellectuality and perhaps the dissolution of knowledge that would have been privileged and owned inside the university and dissolving that into the fabric of society much more. Um, and we have some examples of that from, from I'm not fetishising, sorry, any of these as solutions. But they're interesting transitionally. So, so Joss made the point about cooperatives potentially being a transitional moment in the abolition of academic labour and its co-option for value production for something else, for some other form of kind of social reproduction and reproduction. And there are there are alternatives, and, they op- and some of them operate within the UK, and that's kind of my context. But some of them operate transnationally. And for me, part of our role is shining a light on those and seeing what we can learn from those and attempting to kind of find the courage and solidarity to use those inside the institution or inside our own networks. And one of those, I guess, is from the, the little schools of below um, in Chiapas in Mexico, connected to kind of the Zapatistas. Some of this is also, I find quite interesting, um, in the Republic of Ecuador's national development plan, the National Plan for Good Living, which was written between 2009 and 2013. This is kind of, it's built on hydrocarbons, isn't it? It's built on oil, effectively. But it's attempting to use that in order to define a different form of society that is based very much on um, the role of education, um, not, not just in terms of its kind of privileged institutional format, but also in terms of its kind of um, I guess, societal or um, cultural basis to do something different, to produce something different. So they, um, what was quite interesting about that was that they've, um, do you know the, about the Flock Society, Free Libra, Open Knowledge Society? So there's a guy called um, uh, Michael Bowens who um, works for the Peer to Peer Foundation. And they're working with um, the Ecuadorian government um, in order to try and reimagine Ecuadorian society, to try and do something different and to think about how education and higher education is folded into that mix. So in March of this year, and you can see the bottom corner, it says Flock Society. If you just Google Flock Society, you'll find, um, you'll find the stuff. In March of 2014, they issued an open letter to the, comms, the Global Commons calling for people to be involved in reimagining um, Ecuadorian society based around kind of um, eight key areas, um, one of which was kind of technology and the, and the, and the global commons. The argument, the argument being, Bounds kind of, kind of pivot, the, the, the launch point for this is that we need the new global alliance between 
new open movements, ecological movements and traditional social justice and emancipatory movements to create a grand alliance. This is your kind of association, your transnational alternative association. I find this quite interesting because Bounds is it's transitional. It's attempting to find a way of, of thinking about the market, thinking about the state, thinking about peer-to-peer sharing and production in a world of abundance as opposed to scarcity, where knowledge is the driving force for this. So the role of academics and teachers and educators and students in that process, and the idea of kind of some form of mass intellectuality or a pedagogical process that focuses around production, co-production, student as producer and a levelling, is kind of fundamental. So, it, so I find it very... I find it very interesting because they're kind of predicating on oil, but it's being but it's being used to think about social capabilities and social potential. It's being used to think about democracy, not in its parliamentary sense necessarily, but in in its kind of cooperative, um, permanently and persistently deliberated sense. And it becomes quite interesting in that way. But also thinking about ancestral forms of knowledge. So it isn't just predicated on some kind of tran- on some transhistorical perfection that is 2014 in the UK and it's, and, it's, and it's moving towards perfection of markets. It is respecting kind of what has historically been produced and modes of production in that space as well. And I think that this idea of a global alliance and this idea of alternative spaces and this idea, this idea of looking for those helps me kind of think about Gaminda's point from earlier. But it also connects into, I think, a range of other, other kind of common spaces that are, that are kind of emerging or that still exist after the failures of 2010, 2011. And some of those are things like, in quite a banal way, DS106, which is a, which is a kind of almost anti-MOOC. It's a kind of online community that exists globally for sharing and support that is around, I guess, kind of media production, but it's quite interesting in the way in which pedagogy is negotiated in that space and who has power and authority. Also things like the Social Science Centre, um, the tracks produced by the University of Utopia, which are still around as well, and some of the social centres that exist. And I think they're quite interesting because as the Social Science Centre states in its values, there are, this is about the possibilities for associational networks, and it's about trying to open up spaces for those associational networks. The, Sarah Amsler, who works at Lincoln, talks about this in terms of a politicised relation to truth in affairs of education, knowledge, and academic practice. It's about speaking back, effectively, and finding the courage to speak back, and that's really important. Um, so I'm just going to return to my last slide, to, to Willits, really. And so... I am quite interested in what this idea of mass intellectuality means. It kind of emerges from Marx's work in the Grundrisse on the general intellect and the way in which science and technology is, is used as a way of kind of co-opting the skills, expertise, knowledge, practices from labour and investing them in dead labour and machinery in order that you don't own, own, anything, own anything effectively to leave and control and discipline labour more effectively. And kind of emerging from that is this idea of, of mass intellectuality, our common ability to produce based on needs and capacities and what needs to be done. And that what needs to be done raises um, what need what needs to be done raises doing from the level of the individual to the level of society. So it's a different way of thinking about stuff in terms of abundance as opposed to artificially imposed scarcity. And it's certainly in terms of thinking about the knowledge production as a way of cracking open. Um, institutions, cracking open ways of working, of opening up new avenues and possibilities. And I think, actually, Willits, that's a real cultural change back towards teaching. 
So I'm going to um, end there. I'll end there. Thanks, Richard. I'll just invite you three to come and sit up here for the discussion. Uh, unfortunately, we have to vacate this room promptly at five, so we need to make sure that we observe that. Um, but we have plenty of time for the discussion. Uh, to start with, I'll just take questions one by one, I suppose. Uh, um, my name is Ariane, from the University. I have a question to uh, to everyone, namely um, on this question of. Um, Collectivity, cooperatives, free universities, sort of uh, more social, more collective ways of, of doing things that go against the grain, that, that claw back some autonomy, that are anti capitalist perhaps also in, in their endeavours. How do we differentiate that project from capitals and finances' current interest in the social and current interest in uh, mutualism, cooperatives, collectives, etc.? I mean, the, the buzzword, one of the buzzwords being big society, but there are also other social investment, etc. that is going on at the moment. There's a real interest in all of this stuff, and um, certainly also things like participatory budgeting. But the question then becomes, of course, what is that model? What is the interest of finance and capital in that model? And how um, are we supposed to behave as, on the one hand, collective, collectivized subjects involved in cooperatives that are being perhaps potentially financialized or governed on the basis of a sort of more um, corporate logic? And, and these projects that are about a sort of grassroots alternative that is uh, that we want to be a bulwark against that and take us beyond that kind of uh, vision of a sort of fully financialized society where the social is subsumed under under financialization and under under sort of capitalist projects. So how do we think the difference between between the two and what can our project be that is different from from that? Um. Uh, I, uh, well, I, I don't think you. I don't think we have to, or we should be trying to um, uh, create a situation that is black and white. Um, I, I think in, that we should we should see that the the kind of the, the conditions of, the, of today are the conditions that we have to build upon, that we have to work within. Um, we should see that any emphasis on, on kind of sociality, um, or, or on, on sharing, um, can be interpreted in different ways. Um, you know, I, I, I think we need to approach it critically. We need to kind of remind ourselves of certain fundamental principles. We need um, we need to be uh, uh, demonstrating and educating uh, people that, that, that there is not just one approach to this, that it is not just a kind of neoliberal or capitalist approach to this. Um, but I don't, you know, what, one thing I'm quite conscious of in my work is that I'm not that interested in, in the idea of resistance uh, in terms of, of just blocking something constantly, but rather trying to understand what the, the moment is and, and what the opportunity is. And, um, you know, I haven't uh, read volume three in its entirety, but of course Marx talks about the uh, financialization of capital, the, the idea that uh, shareholder companies is the, the kind of the, the kind of uh, movement towards communism in, in the idea that it socializes property. So, um, you know, 
uh, there is a tendency, I think, an understandable one for us to want to just resist all this um, and not also to try and understand the opportunities. So, big society, sure, it's, uh, you know, uh, very problematic, um, but there might be opportunities that people would use subversively um, uh, for our own cause. That's, that's how I kind of uh, try to view this. So. Any other thoughts? I kind of don't. I, I kind of don't want to answer it because whatever you say risks being kind of fatuous. Really, it's just kind of for me. It's kind of how do I make sense of kind of my work inside the institution and beyond without going down that kind of. Um, I don't know, is it John Holloway who writes about Exodus? Mm, no, yeah. Amongst no. others. Amongst others. You know. And yeah. <laughs> and it's and it's I think in his earlier work, you know, talking about kinda an ex an exodus from from capital and also capital's ability to exodus from you. You do you do you, you push back in specific spaces, well, you know, you find you don't get well it's impact, isn't it? You don't get you ain't gonna get funded for that. So for me it's kind of in the same way that the system attempts to kind of co-opt, it, are, are, are there are there moments in which you can co-opt back? Mm-hmm. So, for instance, at our institution, we have a focus on on the public good, whatever that means. Well, I'll go and I'll, I'll attempt to go into occupation on that. Then, I'll attempt to kind of drive us. I understand that the vice chancellor. There are certain things that the vice chancellor wants out of that, and I understand that because he is in competition with other vice chancellors because. He's got, to, he's got to make recommendations back to the credit rate, to Moody's, credit rating agency. He's got to keep bondholders happy, all of that. I understand the pragmatics of that. But actually, if it enables me to go back into occupation and enable, I don't know, to be able to, to liberate anything from um, uh, working working on literacy with specific marginalised kind of communities in Leicester, then, well, and then to reframe what... The, the idea of the public is in that space. So I've just set up a centre for pedagogic research inside the university, and we're and we're building it around the model of the social science centre, scholarship, kind of trying to make it less hierarchical. Talking about kind of negoc- negotiation, you know, and academics kind of kick back against this. Don't want to deliberate with you, Richard. Don't want to have to kind of co-negotiate an implementation plan. You draft one. Well, why can't we do that together? You know, it's just painful stuff. But actually, this is a model for other ways of working beyond. You know, so. For me, it's about going into occupation of certain things, but no, but knowing when to hold, fold, walk away, run, all of that. Well, I'm not I, just oh, one. Sure. I'm not. I'm, I'm not so much kind of concerned about capital's interest in in things that we sort of um, value, you know, cooperatives, commons, relationships, etc. I'm. I'm um, for, 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 for me, that's not the big problem. The big problem is the, the, the how how we can sort of kind of um, keep building the alternatives to capital and and make that more successful. So, kind of, I the alternatives are there everywhere in terms of open source. But um, what I see is that um, there is a sort of um, stagnation. Um, so, for ten years, people have been in the open source movement have been talking about we really need to replace Google, they're dangerous and um, everybody, there were kind of, you know, hundreds of projects were designed um, for open source developers to kind of overcome that but kind of and overcome Facebook and everything, but kind of eventually kind of didn't happen. Um, 
there were some there were some attempts, but there, it seems like, and I think this is the kind of problem that I see with with everything that alternatives are there, are there but. What, what I call sort of state of exhaustion, it kind of just doesn't, we, 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 don't, we don't sort of kind of have enough time and enough energy to kind of really build on what we want to build. So I'm, I'm, this is the kind of problem that I identify as the, as the big one, not the exploitation of capital of kind of, you know, whatever it is that we produce. If I could just ask you to keep the questions as concise as possible. We have one here. I'll try and do that. Uh, uh, thanks for the, the gift of the talks. Uh, really enjoyed them. Um, I suppose the first thing I want to say is uh, to Andres, that your reading of MOOCs would be very different from mine. I wonder if you're... Uh, what you cited were kind of ex-MOOCs, and if anything was an example of venture capitalism, I would kind of say... Uh, those ex-MOOCs like you know, Coursera or whatever, when I mean, they're just funded by, uh, you know, it's American system, it's venture capital. Uh, you, in terms of the gift and the comments, you might be more interested in something like C-MOOCs, which is kind of a bit of an earlier generation and a bit more trying to be more collaborative and cooperative. So you might want to kind of look at them. But what I want to ask in the panel, I'm trying to keep this short, is how does the digital affect these kind of older notions of, of politics and economics that we are working with? So, you know, you're taking a theory of the gift from uh, Northwest and the potlatch, and you're kind of trying to see it in the contemporary situation, and you're taking cooperative labour. But, you know, the usual argument of the digital is it's non-rivalrous, we don't have to do that. And it creates problems, even for your, you know, you're talking about Dimitri Kleiner. I mean, everyone that's working with the digital and the commons, none of them have a common idea of the commons. I mean, it's all different. Free, free software, open source, creative commons, copy left, copy far left. Piracy, great comments, it's all completely different. So, how do we kind of cope with that? How do we deal with that? There is the kind of notion of the comments. And if I want to join your cooperative you know, institution, what happens if I'm not a certain kind of political Marxist? I'm only still really left and whatever, but how, how do you cope with that? <laughs> Uh, well, the SSC has always said it's a model, and so the idea is we'd encourage you to set up one of your own wherever you are. Well, you're somewhere else, not part of your common no, no, of course you can. <laughs> it, 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 it's entirely open, but. Uh, um, There's an entrance exam, though. If you haven't read the Grundrisse, you can't. <laughs> yeah. you know. <laughs> the third book, yeah? <laughs> um, yeah. Open. Uh, so the, 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 the commons on, on the internet. It's funny, I got into all of this. Uh, my background is technology and, and kind of technology and education, open source, open data. I've done lots of work in that area. Uh, and, and in that sense, it's what's, um, you know, I see that as a kind of a proto uh, form for what. Uh, I would like to kind of see more of in the physical material world, and this is a, you know, this is a common expression among people um, that are interested in peer-to-peer um, production. Um, yes, how to deal with uh, rivalrous um, economy? Um, I don't know. You know, I'm I'm still trying to figure it out. There's this very kind of interesting, but obviously problematic uh, idea of open cooperatives being um, talked about in the last few months. Merging of the peer-to-peer world and the cooperative world. They've definitely got things to learn from each other. Um, You know, 
I think we need a bit of patience. Um, we're not going to uh, achieve this ideal in the next year or the next 10 years, I don't think. Um, uh, you know, I, yeah, I, I just think that, that we, we do what we can, we learn what we can. There's a bit of sacrifice involved in this as well. You know, um, I've talked to you today about worker co-ops worker co and the idea of worker cooperative university. Um, we could set that, that up tomorrow. You know, people are setting up worker cooperatives around the world every day, and they're doing it with a degree of sacrifice. You know, they're, they're basically taking a risk for one reason or another. Um, why aren't academics taking that risk? Um, I'm not ready to take that risk. Um, but uh, we, we do have to remember that people are doing this. People are doing this in the virtual world of the internet, and then they're taking risks and creating new social institutions um, in the physical, material sense as well. Um, and uh, I think we just have to keep trying to work through this. In the, um, in the formation of social science, we've had this long discussion about, well, what do we do if Willich shows up and he wants to be involved? And what do we, you know, or son of Hayek or whatever wants to be involved? And we were kind of, it was kind of, well, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. We'll have to, it, it's about the kind of, there's a constitution that's based on um, uh, consensus decision-making. The constitution is very clear about the kind of organizing Principles, and from there, it's a kind of very painful negotiated experience. So earlier on this year, we were negotiating the curriculum. It was a two, it was the most amazing two-hour experience that we had, where there were about fifteen of us in the room, I think, with a range of people. Some people who had kind of been marginalised from within higher education and had left. Some people who had had um, uh, uh, some kind of health-related issue and had to had to leave. Some people who just wouldn't felt that school had failed them, and professors sitting in the same space. But it was the most revelatory experience negotiating collaboratively the, or cooperatively, sorry, the, um, what the curriculum would look like, who would be responsible for leading, who would be, and, and who would be buddying up to mentor in that space. And, the, and, it, and it wasn't like there was an imposition of a, of a specific kind of approach or methodological kind of approach. And we've seen people come in and, and go out. It was really interesting because about two days later, I was then running a postgraduate certificate in higher education session where I tried to do the same thing and it was what are you doing give me the prescribed curriculum the learning outcomes the assessments and it was a very very different space where one was willing to be messy and conflicted and painful and the other kind of wanted to run from that in terms of the digital item at one point and that is that, that Joss has just written a couple of really interesting blog posts on open cooperativism that attempt to look at the ways in which um the digital work that is that is flawed in all sorts of ways and, and does reinforce hegemony in all sorts of ways um, of people like the Peer-to-Peer -peer Foundation are trying to work with kind of cooperatives on the ground to reimagine something different and I think that's quite a, that's kind of interesting. Beyond that it's looking for things like the, the recent open library of the humanities that Martin Eve at Lincoln has just started up to try and find an alternative way of pushing back against publishers to find an alternative way of publishing. Um, in that the kind of thing that was talked about this morning the maths thing that was talked about this morning it was kind of interesting and sparkling the archives thing so <laughs> but it does reinforce hegemony I think and we, we're not necessarily aware of that as much as we should be so um, can I can I very, very briefly yeah. Yeah. Um, it was about digital technologies wasn't it the, 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 
I think I think it, 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 it totally depends on the context. I think in the context of neoliberal capitalism, they're deadly. They will, they will, they will. I think I think very soon they will. They will make all human labor, not all, but 90% of what we, what you have at the moment, obsolete. Machinery, artificial intelligence. Um, so um, uh, I think the kind of developments that, that are, are about to happen are, are extremely scary. So, um, but that's not the fault of digital, te digital technology. So, you know, this is, um, the, this is the way they're kind of um, used in, in, in this environment. They also... Um, open up amazing possibilities and um, ultimately it's about struggle <laughs> and who wins that's my short answer thank you uh, it looks like we have we we're probably have room for two and we'll take them at the same time you and then uh, the woman in the back shirt, and the black shirt there we'll, we'll just take them at the same time oh sorry you can go first not exactly the same time <laughs> so this show of holding and folding so I think present I'd rather hold them onto the public university or the idea of the public university and if it's an issue of struggle if we can't struggle for the public university why would we be so capable of struggling for other things the great thing about the public university I think is it's not state provided services, it's publicly funded education within which education can be we may not as teachers have provided it there's nothing about the public university that means that education can't be provided. These other ideas, I think, are great, but I cannot see the scope, the scope for generalizability and innovation unless we also protect the platform of the public university. And if the funding of the financial, or if the mechanisms of the financialization of the university are coming into crisis, isn't this a moment for us to push back at the crisis around financialization and the new mechanisms that will have to be introduced and potentially struggled over, but only struggled over if we hold rather than fold? I think that's an important question. Yeah, and we'll take yours and then we'll have a general response. I just wanted to really know more about these struggles around the curriculum um, and what kinds of knowledge, whether you were talking about an organisation of pre-legitimised knowledge by the university, whether you're talking about things like APL and finding ways of recognising knowledge that doesn't get in the university, and you're discussing that to our um, that, that was uh, an, attempt, an attempt to say that anything in this banal module on assessment and feedback in higher education is up for grabs. Let's negotiate. No, I mean in the, the cooperative. Oh, the cooperative one. The one, that, what, the one that wasn't, I mean, I understand. That's about cooperative education. Yeah, sorry, that was about... I just wondering about, for me, the interesting, sort of what the thing that I was wanting, in, uh, sort of, you know, which yeah. the interesting the, the point you were all pointing towards in your presentations was the struggle over the, what, what would a curriculum yeah. in a cooperative yeah. or alternative university be, which is a problematic question, I think. Um, and since you've obviously just had a discussion around the curriculum in a cooperative university, that's kind of what I want to know, is what that discussion was. Uh, well, it was, it, it was designed and negotiated by everyone involved. So what was the con was, what, what that was okay. And, and what, what were people wanting? And what were, you know, to what extent were really radical curricula thing? And I mean, like the problem of ACL, for example, which is incredibly difficult in a legitimate university, yeah. but might work yeah. more in um, a cooperative university, in my imagination. Well, it's all. Presentation of prior learning, which is really problematic. I think. 
to um, recognise non-legitimised forms of knowledge, which is what happens, and I assume what would be happening or on the table in the cooperative university. Yes, but of course people could use that as APL, yeah. Yeah. It's all on, actually it's all online, we blogged everything okay. all, the, all the notes, all the curriculum development all, So it's pretty transparent in terms, of, in terms of kind of where that went And whether people wanted kind of accreditation posts Whether they wanted to keep portfolios How they wanted to manage the, the process All of that, which people kind of don't want They don't necessarily want the certificate They want to be part of something and to learn In order to be able to put that into place in their, um, in their everyday experiences So um, I'll, I'll grab your email address and ping that out to you Okay the question about the public university and whether we want to hold or fold. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I take that point. You know, this uh, public. I said I'm not very nostalgic about it, um, and I think the kind of reason for that is that the public university, um, as long as the public university worked very well, um, was um, its function was to cement class and reproduce it. And I think that's kind of hard to argue against. So, um, well, I think it's easy to argue against because you've seen in Andrew's presentation what it means to cement class. That is, there is a project now to cement class. So the public university in Britain was the only... I mean, you couldn't have a public university that deconstructed class after a system of private secondary education. But bear in mind, it was the only non-private you know, status. You know, in a sense, it mm. was a challenge to that, mm. to that. So, if you reify what it, you know, it had to overcome all aspects of class. You remove the one bit which, which was the least class-based. Then this just came at the end, and that's a problem. But you know, Willits is designing the full semantic class. Mm. Sorry, I mean, my apologies. Mm. Just sort of well, I mean, Bourdieu, Bourdieu would argue that the uh, university has a kind of core role in the reproduction of class, and and I think and I I, I think this argument is really very valuable. But um, I think it I, I think it must be allowed to kind of think beyond the public university, just as a as a thought experiment. So I think it's, um, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm not sort of, I'm not sort of kind of completely against the public university. It's just I, I, that I, that I don't see that this is the kind of, you know, that this might, I, th I think in a situation like that, it's kind of, it's interesting to kind of, you know, think from scratch and, and think about what sort of kind of education and what sort of kind of institutional framework and, and, in such the, the, yeah, do, do we want or do we need? And I, 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 that's sort of kind of my position at the moment. Uh, my position is that we we obviously continue to fight for the public university, um, and that uh, a public university could also take on, if not wholly, a lot of the cooperative values and principles. And that um, I would see, if roughly speaking, in the kind of conversion. Uh, kind of route that I, I outlined. So, um, you know, what I'm certainly not suggesting is that we do everything, that we kind of 
do everything all at once, that we need people experimenting through creation route. We need people dissolving the universities from the inside into more kind of cooperative um, institutions, and we need to see one or two institutions try to convert to cooperative and see what that, that entails as well, all the same along the same time as doing exactly what you're doing in the uh, fight for the public university. So, um, no, this is, for me, this isn't a, a kind of a, a, an outright rejection of, of the public university for all of its mm. historical problems, um, but, uh, you know, it, it is a recognition that we actually have to bloody well do something, and, and um, we have to do lots of different things. So. Yeah, the, uh, I, I agree. What, one strand of that is to go back into occupation of, of public and to do that in a variety of spaces, be it a Centre for Pedagogic Research at DMU or working with UCU or working with a campaign for public university or, or just having the courage to speak up in those committee meetings where you become, where you think you're becoming marginalised. And to go back into occupation, I think, is one strand. So I'm kind of, I'm with him. I think that the key, the key point is the point I make in the first page of the paper, and that is if, if the problem for us is ownership and governance of higher education, then there's a, 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 an international movement of solidarity that for the last 150 years has been trying to think this through in their own various forms of institutions, and we can learn from that. That's, that's the bottom line, really, I think. Um, what it ends up like is, you know, who knows? I think we have to conclude on that note. Can we just thank the panelists?